You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and the web of fear is back at the BBC. And you know what? Not only is the web of fear back at the BBC and sitting on my computer, I haven't had time to watch it yet, and I am sitting here talking to you too. Hi, I'm JR. <laughs> I was about to call us the pleb and the deer, but anyway, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's our introduction sorted. <laughs> Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm Simon. Well, at least we've all introduced ourselves now. The Web of Fear, guys. Yeah. It's all right, isn't it? Yes, the Web of Fear is back at the BBC, and so is the enemy of the world. The enemy of the world, guys. I expected to be more excited about Web of Fear, but I think Enemy of the World has taken me by surprise. Yes, me too. Oh, okay. We'll get down to that in a minute then. I just wanted you to say whether you were happy. I'm bloody ecstatic. It's amazing. I never thought I would see those shows. The last time we had a complete story returned was back in 1991, and all but for an episode. We've had two pretty much complete stories now. Yeah. Unbelievable. What are the chances of that? And actually, thinking about it, season five, Tomb of the Cybermen, mm-hmm. Enemy of the World, Web of Fear, all season five. We'll get down to this in a minute. <clears throat> we have got lots of emails, and I think we ought to start with a couple now and try and dot them in throughout the show and see how many we get through. Damien Ashley says, Hello, chaps. With you since day one. I was just wondering... With these new old episodes about to be revealed, are you concerned that finally getting to see them may be a bit of a disappointment? That they live on best within the pages of a Target book? We all want... Oh, this is before he knew what the stories were. We all want Power of the Daleks, but what if it turns out to be the Smugglers, for example? Does it matter? JR would be happy. Yeah, I'd be happy with the Smugglers. Yeah, I like I the think Smugglers. I would be as well, actually. Quite so. Do you know what I was thinking? No, actually, let's get to the end of Damien's uh, email. He says, after all, Tomb turned out not to be the Stone Cold classic it was always supposed to have been. Do you think the early classic series benefits from not being quite all there? And that's probably not a bad point. I think some of those stories have probably got reputations more than they deserve on account of the fact that we don't get to see them. Do you know, I've said this many a time, haven't I? People think of season five as being a really grown-up season of Doctor Who. Mm Mm-hmm. But I really don't think it is. I think season five is purely for the kids. It's the Doctor fighting monsters, isn't it? Mm. All bar enemy, I suppose, really. Yeah, mm. I, I certainly wouldn't... Well, we'll talk about it later, but I certainly wouldn't say enemy is for kids. I really wouldn't. Oh, I absolutely would. It's James Bond for kids. Yeah, I would say the performances this... in that are geared very much towards the children watching. Ooh, there's a quite a bit going on, though. I don't know whether as a kid I would have followed it like that. Yeah, but I think that's the good thing about Doctor Who. The best kind of Doctor Who has got a lot of stuff that the kids can watch without having to understand, because as long as they know who the bad guy is and who the good guy is, that's enough. Mm. And then you layer it so that other people can enjoy it too. Mm. But I think, we'll get into this more in a minute, but I definitely 
definitely think the enemy of the world is very much a kid's cereal. Uh, just with plenty of stuff there that grown-ups can <laughs> enjoy too. Probably why I enjoyed it so much then. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I don't um, think there's anything wrong with that. Can I just make the point though that that point of um, you know is there a, is there a worry that when these seri- these shows are finally seen that they don't live up to the expectations? Yeah. Well, it, it can. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because Enemy is something I I. When I heard Enemy of the World was the one where they'd recovered, I was like, right, okay, that's all right. Well, at least we've got Web of Fear. And having watched it, I'm completely of the other, the other opinion. I actually, you know, I'm, I'm blown away by it. And, you know, the Enemy of the World was one that I've always had a huge soft spot for. So, actually, for me, I'm not saying it's been a disappointment, but it wasn't, you know, for me, it was the experience of watching it wasn't that I was being blown away by how good it was. Mm. It was what I expected it to be, to be honest. Okay. Hmm. Uh, what were we gonna? Uh, did we brought something else up a few seconds ago, and it's gone. <laughs> Mark, do you remember? I was going to ask a question. Oh, I don't suppose uh, you know what question I was going to ask. Though, no, I've, my ability to read your mind has somehow failed me. Okay, let's forget the mind reading <laughs> stuff. Um. No, I'm looking at that email and I can't see what it might have been. There's another email from somebody called Andrew Moore, who says, don't do email. Oh, this is on Facebook, so I'll put this to you all here. He says, if you look at the schedule of releases from two entertain in the past, there seemed to be a certain amount of collaboration between them and the program makers, examples being the Baker Davison box set shortly before the Masters return, and the Silurian Sea Devil set shortly before their return. Yeah. And of course, obviously, we had the um, Sontaran one as well that was around yeah. the time of the Sontarans. Mm. He says, I have no idea how long the newly discovered episodes have been with the BBC, but it's the great intelligence's presence in the past year an example of this in reverse. I think Stephen from um, Radio Free Scaro hinted at this, but I wasn't mm. quite sure. Would love to hear all your thoughts. Up to episode 35 of the podcast now. Oh, that's right. Andrew was the one who was going back to the start. That's right. Aye, but obviously he's listening to the current episodes alongside the others. He says, up to episode 35, still loving it. You have the rare ability of not making a lapsed fan not feel a numpty for having forgotten things. And you know why? Because we all lapsed as well. Well, I know I did. (laughs) I do on a regular basis. We are all together lapsed. We are collapsed. And we and we all forget things too. We do. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I, I am sitting. I can't I remember what had for dinner yesterday. Let alone. I'm talking about in Doctor Who. I know, but I'm just saying, <laughs> memory's not working as it was anyway. So. No, but I'm sitting right next to a program guide that is within arm's reach now. Ah. Uh, uh, yes. Going back to his question, <laughs> I think it's got to be one hell of a coincidence that Moffat just decides to go back to the Great Intelligence. After oh, I'm convinced. Yeah. Well, let's let's face it. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a damn good chance that these have been in the in somebody's possession for a very long time. The powers that well, not be, a very the, long time. Well, <laughs> um, no, a considerable amount of time. Enough because, time for for, the, for it to be restored properly. So yeah, exactly. It, it's physically possible that it, they've been. The knowledge of this has been in Stephen Moffat's hands long enough that he was able to write a script to tie in with it. So, yes. Or more than one script, a whole story arc. Yes. Um. Yeah. Well, obviously, I think probably the story arc was written because 
Stephen Moffat had an inkling that the Web of Fear would be on the horizon at around the time the episodes turned up, or shortly thereafter. And the other thing is, <coughs> even if we perhaps I'm suffering from a bit of the tail end of the flu if I'm coughing, um, the other thing is, even if perhaps he wasn't sure, or perhaps it was just to an extent coincidence or you know him maybe going out on a limb i think for one thing the reference specifically to the web of fear and the underground yeah. in the snowmen that looked to me a bit of a not necessarily a last minute addition but something he put in on the understanding that the web of fear was probably being restored at the time he wrote mm -hmm. it yeah yeah that would so, make sense mm, yeah I, i'd say definitely I'd say, I don't know to what extent, but yeah, definitely, no question. Let's, let's face it, you would. Put in that position, you would. You can you can look at it cynically and say it's a commercial decision. Yeah, it is, but it's also quite a cool thing as well. Absolutely. Um, we, got, we did our favourite show just recently, didn't we, where we yeah. named three or four favourites and a least favourite, and I stuck it out on Twitter. And we didn't get a huge number of replies, but we got a few... So I'll read out the replies we got. Just I asked people to say what their favourites and least were as well. So, well, here's Jenny Shirt says her favourites: the Horror of Fang Rock, The Visitation, Seeds of Doom. Least favourite: Brain of Morbius. That's slightly odd, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. That's usually one of the more. But what I mean is, also, she's patently a fan of that era of Doctor Who. Yeah. Two of her favourites: The Horror of Fang Rock and The Seeds of Doom. So slightly odd that the Brainy Morbius should come in as least favourite, but there you go. Mm. Uh, Sookie Kark. We have not heard him from him enough of late, but here he is. <laughs> He's been he too says... busy guesting on Nerdology. Oh, is oh he? really? Uh... Plug. Uh, anyway, he says, <laughs> classic series fave, Curse of Fenric, and least favourite, The Dominators. New series favourite, Blink, least favourite, Fear Her. Not really a surprise, that last mm. new series bit, really, is it? Um, Rita Preston. Oh, she gives a few favourites. Unearthly Child, Greatest Show in the Galaxy, Horror, Fang Rock, Earth Shock. Um, and from the new series, Tooth and Claw and the Girl in the Fireplace, her least favourite, she says, is Paradise Towers. Mm. And that's not right. I don't like that. <laughs> <coughs> Gary Davison. Such J.I., you're wrong. Oh, hush. Gary Davison, favourites, Genesis of the Daleks, Five Doctors, Three Doctors, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and dinosaurs on a spaceship. Blink, human nature, Christmas invasion, time crash. Actually, he's named a lot more than three or four, hasn't he? Least favourite, time in the Rani. I think Sylvester McCoy's getting a bit of a kicking here. <laughs> well, Oh, uh, no, by, actually, by over on Google+, Plus, uh, Mark Whiteley has picked Remembrance of the Daleks as one of his favourites. Oh, go on. And uh, Day of the Daleks. Um, and his least favourite... Every River Song story. Bit harsh. Oh, that that's harsh. not fair. Not fair at all. What, <laughs> Silence in the Library? Mm. Oh, dear. No, uh, finally, we, we've got one more from Twitter. Uh, Kyle Anderson says... Do you want to say anything that that juncture, Mark? The Kyle Anderson. Says his favourite's Inferno and his least favourite is Timelash. That has been that way for eons, he says. I almost want to watch it again, but so disgusted was I by my first encounter with it that I've never wanted to go back. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, it's worth going back, though. <clears throat> can, we, 
we've all <clears> gone <throat> back to old episodes, haven't we? And we don't, you know, it's worth doing. I think, hmm, I think if you think you're not going to like something, I think that's the ideal time to go back. Because if you go in with the assumption that you're not going to like it, it can only be a pleasant surprise. I, I had a, a moment where my eyes were finally open to The Horns of Nyman. I remember watching mm. it as a kid and loving it. Then I watched it later on in life and just thought it was absolutely appalling. And then watched it again when it came back out on DVD and I loved it. <laughs> Which just goes to show. Yeah. Do you see what happened there, though, you're Mark? You're a fickle you creature, was, Mark. You I came very... to it. You came to it with raised expectations on mm. your second viewing yeah. and disappointed. But then you came to it with lowered expectations on your third viewing and it surprised you. This is true. So I think Kyle should go back and take another look at Time Lash. Although I haven't said that every time I've done that. As we found out last week, in fact, at the start of the last episode. <laughs> Anyway, well, I was going to say, if, unless you're one of these stick in the mud fans who have a very set idea of what Doctor Who should be, I think it's an mm. ever evolving experience. The whole series mm. it changes yeah. as it goes along, and that's um, the beauty of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and and therefore you can watch an episode in a multitude of different ways, in a, a load of different mindsets, and experience it in a different way. Absolutely, I think uh, I hate people who think Doctor Who should always be the way they want it to be. I think Doctor Who is best when it's just doing all sorts of different things. Yeah. As we'll get to in a minute, but uh, let's have one more email and then let's move on. Because this one's got an interesting question. I don't know if you two will have had time to think about this and be able to answer it, but still, it's an interesting question. And actually, if our listeners want to email in to blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk or find us on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, they can answer this too if they like, because this is a very entertaining question. Gentlemen, having seen the part animated Reign of Terror and the Invasion and the Ice Warriors, a thought came to me. Never mind that old podcasting staple of which missing episodes would you most wish to be rediscovered. Here's another question. Which stories that do exist in the BBC archives would you prefer we only had in animated form? Ooh. To which he adds, and which style of animation? Bod, Bagpuss, Mary Mungo and Mitch, <laughs> Ivor the Engine, Morph? That's from Doc Home. Now there's a hell of a question, isn't it? I can mm. come to one straight away, which would be amazing animated. Go on. Go on. And I haven't seen all of it, okay? But Go the on, I've seen... From the evidence I've seen, Invasion of the Dinosaurs animated. Oh, yeah. Would uh, be... And you know what? <laughs> yes, that's not <laughs> a bad choice. What style of animation? Oh, well, after seeing that manga, would be <laughs> that would be pretty incredible. But even Hanna-Barbera would be brilliant, even though that's pretty awful. But even Hanna... You know, it would just work, hmm. I think. Mark, Mark, have you got a, a choice? I would like to see the arc in a manga style. <laughs> I would like to see, and this is not because I'd prefer it only in animated form, but I'd like to see it in animated form, The Happiness Patrol. Oh, yes. That would be interesting. Yeah. In what style, JR? I don't know. I'm looking at the list that he's given, because I'm not much of an animation fan, as you know, so I wouldn't be able to say off the top of my head. It's got to be but Bod sh- then, surely. Uh no, happiness. How about happiness patrol in the style of Bagpuss? 
Stop frame. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I know, that'd certainly be interesting, wouldn't it? It might make right. Fifi a bit more uh, realistic. Pardon? Sorry, I missed that. It might make Fifi a little bit more realistic. Oh, shut up and go away. i tell you what, how about the Dominators in the form of Michael Benteen's posse time? Oh, my God. Oh, what was... Mm. I can imagine right. those, those characters, the same outfits, but just as little squat puppets. I'm sorry, American Actually, listeners. Look yeah, up Michael Benteen's posse time. They could do that as bod. Yeah. <laughs> those costumes would work so well as bod, wouldn't they? Yeah, definitely. I could see oh. that. What would we get back, though, if we got rid of the Dominators? Ooh. Oh, I didn't realise it was a trade-off. Well, it's not a trade-off, but I've just made it a trade-off. Oh, okay. Um, so we, oh, we can get any missing episode back if we get rid of the, the Dominators? Yes. Well, it has to be a fair uh, trade. You have to choose something well, crap. I mean, all I'd do is get rid of every Pertwee and bring back all of the Patrick Troutons. And moving on. <laughs> Guys, where were you on Thursday night? Thursday night. Um, the night of the announcement. Well, I, just I said, was I working can't... and then I... <laughs> Go on, sorry. Go on, Simon. No, I was going to say, I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday, as I said earlier, so I can't even remember what I was doing last Thursday. But I do we, know that you... I was awake at, at midnight, though. I, I, I did stay up for midnight mm. to see what, what happened on Twitter. I well, that's basically I what the... I'm asking. Where were you at midnight? Oh yeah, yeah. I was, I was actually, I was in bed looking at my mobile phone. Oh really? Wow. And Mark, you were. I've been doing a late shift at work, so I got home, followed Twitter for a bit, saw one or two places leaking the information that was meant to be yeah. held back until midnight, um, and then got more and more weary and just decided to go to bed, and then woke up in the morning on my day off and downloaded both stories and watched them back to back. I. Got up and downloaded them both first thing as well on Friday. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, I had plans for all day Friday, Saturday and Sunday, so I've not had a chance to watch anything yet. <laughs> Nightmare. <laughs> no. no. All these plans were in place for a long time, so it was like... I, when I say I've not watched anything yet, I've watched the whole of The Enemy of the World. But you know what I mean? I yeah. was like an episode here, an episode there when I had a free half an hour. Piecemeal. It wasn't ideal. But actually, that's not a bad way to watch it. Because yeah, you're not isn't. supposed to watch two episodes back to back. So actually, this I kind of had a little bit of the feel of having to wait for what happens after the cliffhanger till sort of later in the day or something. Hmm. Mark, you, uh, Simon, you've watched... Um, you've had to wait till today, haven't you? What for? The Enemy of the World. Uh, no, I managed to watch it yesterday. Oh, yesterday, okay. Yeah, but you yeah. watched it all in one go? Um, pretty much, but it's staggered. As, as you say, I kept having to pause to do things with the kids and what have you. Mm. And, um, you know, pretend that I had got a family. And, um, <laughs> yeah, but but it worked well like that. It was, it was great. I was doing some artwork at the same time, so it was one eye on one monitor while doing artwork on the other one. So um, I've still got to watch it absolutely focused on it. Um but it, certainly it grabbed my attention from time to time and I completely focused on it. So, uh, yes, I have experienced it and I think I saw the best of it, actually. How excited, then, were we at midnight on Thursday? 
I mean, we all knew at that point, yes, what the episodes were going to be. It didn't really hit me until I started watching Enemy One, uh, Enemy of the World Part One, and yeah, it was very emotional. <laughs> Did you cry? <laughs> no, but it was just. I don't know, it was, just kind of, I was hit by it. I have to say, I sat down, I don't know, probably about half past ten, because normally I go to bed at half past ten. Um, you know, everybody goes to bed at half past ten here. And I thought to myself, no, I've got to stay up. So I had an hour and a half to kill on my own. So I basically just sat down at the computer and sort of kept half an eye on Twitter half an hour on Facebook, got into a conversation with somebody and spent about half an hour talking to them and just kind of quietly killed the time waiting for it to happen. And um, I was surprised at how excited I got. Mm, mm. Knowing already what the episodes were going to be, I was surprised because I suppose even when you know already what things are going to be, you still want to see it confirmed, don't you? You still want it in black and white. Mm, yeah, I was in the same position. I, I'd been told. Yeah, yeah. I don't reveal my sources, but um, well, everybody was told because Lance Parkin revealed it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. See, that's how was. bad my memory is. Yeah, but I, no, I'd been told before that, and then he he leaked it, which kind of confirmed what I'd been told. It was one of those. It was hearsay to a certain degree, and uh, yeah, and then. He came out with that, which kind of semi-confirmed it. There was a little bit of um, argy-bargy about how many episodes there actually were, because everyone was saying nine episodes, so I was saying... Oh, no, no it, was, it was to do with the fact that they said about how many episodes would, had been found, and then I was saying, uh, what is that including the ones they already had of those particular stories? And it was only later on that I read a feature that said, oh, yeah, they've got 11 episodes, not nine, and all this sort of thing. Because for a time I thought, isn't it clever how they always find the ones that they're missing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, I saw... I can't remember what it was. I wonder if it was the thing with Toby on BBC Breakfast the following morning. I don't think it was, but it might have been. But I saw a conversation on the telly where there was like an interviewer and an interviewee or something along those lines. And... uh I don't know, it was something, I can't, what was it? It was somebody from one of the papers or something was talking about it, and she was sitting with somebody else. Anyway, she suddenly said the number 11, and the other two people are on the screen at the same time, that I suddenly boggled. It was the Toby Haydoke interview. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah, was it? he mentioned there were 11 <laughs> episodes found, and the, the guy went, ooh, 11? Oh, no, 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 this was something else. It happened somewhere else as well then. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Just for a second, everybody mm. suddenly went, Eleven, yeah. <laughs> Before realizing that one of them was Web of Fear one, and one of them was Enemy of the World three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was like, oh, you know, but just for a fraction of a second. Yeah, your heart has, gives a little flutter. And it... <laughs> mm. I tell you what, question I was going to ask half an hour ago. <laughs> uh, okay, this is the question I was going to ask half an hour ago. How would you have felt if? Two years ago, they'd have found one episode of The Web of Fear and one episode of The Enemy of the World. And this past week, they'd just revealed all of Galaxy 4 and all of The Underwater Menace. I think I would still have been happy. But probably not as happy. Eh? Probably not as happy, but, <laughs> you know, it's still missing stories that we get to see. Yeah, I know, but it's, I'm of... just glad it was this way around. Oh, God, yes. That's what I'm saying here. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
I mean, oh. I tell you what, where they released the clip on YouTube of the scene on the beach. Yeah. And I watched it and I thought, oh my God, this is nothing like what I expected. And what absolute, and, and, it, and, it, and that's probably the most emotional thing for me, was to suddenly realise that something had been, cl- you know, cl- grabbed from the, from the jaws of death. These absolute little gems of Troughton. Of, of oh, behaving in yeah. a way that we hadn't got on screen, you know, love, lovely madcap. The things we'd always been told about this cosmic hobo thing, I'd never really seen any real evidence of it. And just to see him going off doing something completely crazy and mad was like just stripping wonderful. off and running into the sea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, doing a Reggie Perrin. I mean, brilliant, 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 brilliant. And that was the most exciting moment for me was seeing that and thinking, I've got to see the rest of this. He's so good. Later on. Especially in episode five, I think it is, where he's he's having to kick the sort of salamander impersonation into gear. Yeah. And as he's slipping between the two, his mm. performance is wonderful. There's a moment, I think this is probably in episode four, actually, where he's trying on salamander for size. And his impersonation of salamander kind of gets stronger as the scene progresses even though the same actor has been playing Salamander straight for the yeah. past three weeks. Very clever. <laughs> it's yeah. amazing. Mm. Yes, astonishing. One of my favourite <laughs> bits was in episode one where he's chatting with um, Astrid. And oh, when he's doing up her arm. Yeah, and she says, oh, I think you're the most wonderful man that's fallen out of the sky and the look on his face is an absolute mm. picture. It's brilliant. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. There's just so much to appreciate with mm. Patrick Trown. And this is why I always thought the enemy of the world I was always this is why I was always surprised that the enemy of the world didn't have a better reputation mm. or wasn't one of the ones that was more sought after by fans hoping things would come back. It's got two Patrick Troutons in. Yeah. And not only has it got two Patrick Troutons in playing two you know, two different roles, but he's also got one of the Patrick Troutons in one of the roles impersonating the other one. So, uh, to all intents and purposes, it's got three Patrick Trowns in it. I won't <laughs> mention the name of... Back? Yeah, I won't mention the name of the newspaper because I don't want to give them any more publicity, but uh, on the blog part of a British newspaper, somebody put up a, a piece about the returning episodes and was effectively just moaning because Enemy was one of the ones that had been returned and, ah. uh, and said that uh, it was a travesty that it wasn't uh, the Celestial Toy Maker that came back. Oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> oh, it's almost like they were trolling for sort of feedback because that mm. just, I mean, what I've heard of it is not that good. No. And also that's... he makes a point of going on about how it's a tired MacGuffin. They've got the doppelganger. And then he also goes on to say um, he wishes the massacre had come back. Which has got Which a doppelganger is... in it. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Anywho, enough of that. Mm. Much, but a far less interesting use of the doppelganger. Yeah. I tell you what, a celestial toy maker is a candidate for getting animated, isn't it? It'd probably be better than the original. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Probably they could do something with the soundtrack as well. Oh right. Okay. I've never listened to it. I know. I mean, rewrite the story. Oh. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the issue. Okay. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily the. From what I gather, the first three episodes are more interesting to look at than the fourth episode. Hmm. And, well, uh, the story of the Celestial Toymaker is it's got about three different writers worked on it, and in the end, 
I think the script that they finally ended up with was some kind of the most salvageable bits of all the previous scripts or something. It's not a perfect story by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. Probably turned people's heads when they were three, which is why it's got the reputation it has, or used to have, at any rate. Um, Enemy of the World, then, as a story, I thought it was a lot faster moving than I you'd normally expect. Mm. This is Barry Letts directing as well, isn't it? Yeah, it comes right after The Ice Warriors. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've had The Ice Warriors recently, and I've watched The Ice Warriors recently. And The Ice Warriors <coughs> is very slow. Mm. And it is one of those stories where they've just built the one main set and the whole of the action for six weeks is all based around this one main set. And it is, as much as I like The Ice Warriors, and I do, it's a pretty turgid experience, to mm. be honest, to be fair. And you could be forgiven for expecting the rest of season five to probably be the same. Because let's be honest, all the stories in season five, with possible, ex- no, not even the possible exception of Tomb of the Zidemen, they're all based around, you know, a single main set mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And the enemy of the world, the enemy of the world is the only one that isn't really. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it does jump around from one location to another. And doesn't actually, hurt in the first episode. You've got all the action going on with the hovercraft and the mm. helicopter, and that just makes it seem like a much bigger story. It does. Actually, that's yeah, it, though, clever. isn't it? That, that's all the location work done in episode mm. one, really. Yeah. But you can forgive it, that. Um, I was uh, Just to finish off the thought I was having just then, um, you know, apart from the fact that it does hop around from one place to another, so it, mm. it doesn't. it's not one of these stories that's entirely centred upon one set like most of the rest of the stories in that season. One odd thing about it is its reputation's always been for being pretty globe-trotting, but actually it's entirely in two locations, isn't it? Australia and Central European Zone. Yeah. (coughs) Apart from that, you don't do any more globe-trotting at all, actually, do you? No, not really. Unless you're talking going underground. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's not hardly globe trotting. That's just a few hundred feet down, isn't it? Yeah. But how great were those effects of the uh, the pod going down through the tunnels? That was great. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. a really cool shot. Mm. I I did have one minor quibble because obviously we're fans and we've got to nitpick a bit. I think this is the, the sort can, of the... you can quibble, Mark. It's not by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> a perfect story. Well, I think you can see the seeds of Barry Lett's obsession with CSO. When there's Absolutely. a scene where they're sat in the park and you've got this sort of um, back-projected image oh, of yes. Jamie walking down the path towards them. Nice that you actually get Jamie walking up in the back projection, though. Because yeah. prior to his appearance on it, because it, I think that was um, like about 30 seconds into the scene where Jamie appears. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, you just think, oh, it's some kind of... Uh, found footage of a park somewhere <laughs> and then jamie turns up yeah. and i'm thinking oh whoa okay yes it's quite crafted all i'm thinking is if they went to all the effort to film him in the park why didn't they film the other two as well <laughs> yeah bizarre isn't it yeah. yeah i mean obviously they did take him out to a park somewhere and yes i was thinking exactly the same thing they took him out to the park why didn't they just take all three of them out to the park no, it's all gone george lucas <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, that was very Lee. interesting, though. That is definitely the seeds of Barry Lett's obsession mm. with CSO. 
I was going to say Lee would be very impressed with this story because there are lots of futuristic costumes. Yeah, well, <laughs> I have to say, when they get down into the Batcave, I mean, because that is that is absolutely what that is based on. It's the Batcave meets, uh, you know, the great big undersea spectacular from You Only Live Twice or whatever. Mm-hmm. It is definitely, that is a Bond set at the end there. Bond set meets the Batcave, surely. <laughs> I have to say... Bond on a budget. Um, um, I don't want to put any spoilers in, but we're just assuming that people listening have seen it. Um, the fact that uh, Salamander's got God knows how many of the stupidest people down in that underground <laughs> bunker. That, <laughs> that None of them worked out that the radiation, the, the uh, what is it, the... What do you call it? The thing that gets rid of the radiation is just yeah. purely yeah. a little sensor that makes the dial go up and then down again. Oh, when well, anything this is Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. <coughs> oh, You've hilarious. always got stuff like this in Doctor Who. I know, I know. That's part of its charm. Oh, well, it was it was just great. Really good. Oh, I'm not saying I didn't like it. I just, yeah, but I you say, nothing. Simon, you're asking me, are those people stupid because they didn't notice that? I mean, it's either A, they're stupid, or B, they do not have access to mirrors, and nobody's prepared to tell anybody else, you look pretty stupid in that cardigan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, oh, good old Colin. Yeah. Oh, Lord. I can't think where it was. Was it it on Twitter or something like that? Somebody pointed out that um, Patrick Troughton's accent disappeared for the word Colin. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember who it was. You mentioned that. Now. Whoever it was, I did see that. Yeah. I have to give you brownie points. That was brilliant. And I got to say, Milton Johns, that outfit, my goodness. Oh, and that haircut. Yeah. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> <coughs> I was a bit shocked at that. You didn't really get to it. see. This is the thing. We already had episode three, right? Yeah. So there were certain things that we already knew. There mm. were all the cast, apart from those, who are in the underground. We get to see at least a little bit of their performance mm. in episode three. Most of the sets, until you get to the underground, we get to see a little bit of in episode three. So up until you get to the underground, the only thing that's really a surprise in terms of what it looks like is the location work in episode one. So things like Milton Johns, you're kind of prepared for him, right? Mm-hmm. But then by about episode five, he's running around a bit. And you suddenly get to see just exactly what kind of a haircut they've given him. Because it's kind of not too obvious in episode three. And sweet Lord, it's like it's like a proto-futuristic mullet thing. Bizarre. <laughs> oh, my star of the whole story, though, I have to say my favourite character... is the Not co- the chef? Yes, the chef is incredible. Oh, Still the chef. Giraffe. Still the chef. He's brilliant. He is just brilliant. <laughs> His delivery is incredible. <clears throat> yeah, but also what kind of writing? Who sits down and writes a Doctor Who story and decides they're going to throw a character like that in halfway through when the rest of it's all pretty serious? Yeah. Not not like, it's not in-your-face Caves of Androzani season seven type serious, mm. but it's the rest of it's pretty straightforward. And then all of a sudden you've just got the comedy chef thrown in. And you're right, he's not comedy as in wacky which would be annoying, his comedy as in just really sardonic, which mm. is brilliant. Mm-hmm. I thought Milton Johns was really good. I I do like him. I think whatever he's in, he's always... He tends to get a little bit typecast, mm. but he's. I just think he's a great actor. No, but great. my pick would have to be <coughs> Carmen Monroe. 
Oh, really? Mm. See, oh, I'm yum. not entirely sure I agree with that. Have you got happy yeah, memories okay. of play school? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd say no, um, she's, she's definitely, yeah, hot on. stuff. Okay, fair enough. I'm a bit more of a Mary Peach mademoiselle. Hey, yeah. She could it's, taste your food anytime. It's the um, fly-length boots that do it for you, isn't it, JR? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I've seen Barbarella. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say the two performances that surprised me, really, though, were... Um, oh, God. Actors' names are escaping me. Reaches for the program guide. I'm going to say the guy who plays Giles Kent and the guy who plays Donald Bruce. Uh, oh, Bill Kent, he was very strong, I thought. Oh, very. And to tell you what was great about his performance, because he gets, for at least the sort of first three and a half episodes, probably the first five episodes, really, most of his scenes are with Patrick Troughton playing the Doctor. And we all know how naturalistic mm. Troughton's performance is, how sort of impulsive his performance is. It's, it's almost like he doesn't rehearse what he's going to do. He just rehearses where he needs his performance to be. And he mm-hmm. pictures it when the cameras roll. And, um, oh, you said his name just now. It's gone already. Bill, Bill Kerr? Kerr. yeah. Bill Kerr. His performance matches Troughton's. Do you mm. know? His, mm. He gives a really nice... Na- I mean, it's not quite at the same degree of greatness as Troughton's is. Mm. And it's not pitched quite as well as Troughton's because Troughton's been pitching his performance in Doctor Who for Doctor Who, for the people who watch Doctor Who, for the past sort of year and a half by this point. But... I think him and Troughton on screen together were a delight to watch. Mm. And Donald Bruce, um, the guy who plays Donald Bruce, he's Colin brilliant. Douglas. Colin Douglas, he's excellent. Yes. I don't want to say what happens to that character at the end. No, no, the other character. I don't want to say what happens to any characters. Spoilers. <laughs> but um, for, for the first four episodes, those two characters, great. Not necessarily brilliant, but great. And in the last two episodes, both of those characters come into their own. And, <coughs> you know, even though <coughs> I've seen a recon and read the book and what have you, and knew what was coming, it was still an absolute delight to watch it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I did. I did. Absolutely. I, I'm not one who, I don't, as soon as I find out um, a story runs further than four episodes, I think, okay, let's let's see how it goes. But no, it, it just kept going and it and it ticked along nicely, I thought. I think it worked so much better than a lot of six-parters. Mm, mm. Especially ones from that era, potentially. Uh, you know, with the Ice Warriors as perhaps the best, nearest example. Mm. Yeah, to... it's it's a totally different pace, different tone. And let's, let's face it, that story could have... It could have just been Salamander... Um, you know, controlling the weather or something like that. It could have just stopped with all being on the surface. But as soon as that underground society is introduced, all of a sudden there's another level to the story. Yeah. That, that didn't need... Literally, to... as well as figuratively. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It could have... It, that story could have just as easily been done with just the surface as Salamander's just, you know, manipulating the whole thing. And then if you find out there's this whole other thing going on. Fantastic, fantastic. And when Christopher Burgess turns up at the end of episode five, sort of in that really hokey, I'm walking through a forest really made of shrubs in the studio set, that 
the really this story really kicks into gear because for five episodes it's achieved quite a bit, but in the sixth episode it's got so much more to get through to get there. And what really surprised me was how well they did that, given how little they were able to show, given what sets and characters they had to hand. Mm. Because they had to sort of skip over quite a lot of stuff that was happening in episode six. But they managed to work their way around it in a way that kept everything comprehensible and enjoyable and fast moving enough that you were swept along with it, but not so fast moving that you were left behind. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that really spoiled that was the fact that the final scene had had to be edited down because the effects weren't working, mm. and the That's meeting between yeah the meeting between the Doctor and Salamander should have been a good three minutes, and in the mm. end it was something like forty seconds or something, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean that shot of them face to face is very iconic, and lasts about a second and a half. Or yeah, something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a real shame. Yeah, mm. but you know, I mean. Better that than they'd had to get rid of that scene altogether and come One thing I will say instead. is if you're keen to see this, um, well, we've probably spoiled most of it anyway, but whatever you do, do not watch the trailer before you watch it because this is quite different from the trailers I've seen for previous DVD releases. It gives away the ending. It also shows a lot of the major plot points. Um, so I recommend watching it after you've seen all the episodes. Right, because I still haven't watched that trailer. Mm. In fact, I meant to watch the Web of Fear trailer. Before. It's the same on the Web of Fear as well. Do not watch oh, it before it? you've seen the program. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I might save that one as well, then. I've not watched yeah. either of the trailers yet. But like I say, I only had a chance to squeeze in the Enemy of the World episodes before we came here, and mm. so did Simon. Mm. Mm. So we're going to have to talk at more length about the Web of Fear another time. But Mark, give us a few impressions of the Web of Fear. You are in for a treat. Oh, really? I mean, obviously, we've had episode one for quite some time, and that leaves you wanting more, and it's not disappointing. Um, Douglas Camfield is phenomenal. I think he makes really filmic-looking programs on a tiny, tiny budget. Um, And it's the, the sort of suspense is there from trying to work out who is the insider for the great intelligence. So you've got that element going on. Is you that revealed great... in the trailer? Um, yeah, to a degree. Oh, yeah. is it? Yeah, oh. yeah, exactly. So do not watch so the trailer before. They shouldn't assume, assume that people know the stories already. They should treat them as Especially new stories. something that nobody's seen for yeah. 45 years. Oh, absolutely. This, this is what I find so staggering. Some of those wonderful gem-like moments in Enemy of the World mm. and in Web of the Fear um, it's almost hard to believe that we were never going to see them It could have, they could have just gone and that would have been it and oh my god yeah. it's just incredible we've got them Episode well, you know, 4, another... The Battle of Covent Garden is cracking it's brilliant <laughs> is there... you get, you get I have to, to see... ask at this juncture because I've seen this written down so many times mm-hmm. is Episode 4 actually called The Battle of Covent Garden on screen no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, You've got um, Nicholas Courtney playing the action hero. Mm. There's explosions. There's Yeti. Uh, it's brilliant. Oh, Absolutely brilliant. Does the Brigadier do his throwing the pistol shooting? You know, like he does. Um, you know, he, he almost oh, like yeah, he's, yeah. he's flicking the bullets at people. It's Instead brilliant. of doing a kickback. <laughs> 
He does a sort of kick forward as he's about to pull the trigger. <laughs> I've never noticed that before. I'm going to have to watch it again now. Uh, uh. I think he saw, probably saw it in a Bond film once and decided that that's how it looks exciting to shoot a gun. One thing I have to say, having watched... I didn't notice it so much on Enemy, but certainly on Web of Fear, they, I think it is a new copy of Episode 1 that they've used. Um, and the quality of the picture is that bit better... The sets are stunning. You know, it's been said many times before about the Transport for London thing and how they were going to sue them for filming when they shouldn't have, but it was all sets. The TARDIS set looks pretty shonky. Not the console, but the walls around it. You can see where it's been repainted and there's bits of, like, plywood kind of stuck to the wall. Maybe that's just me being a a sort of nerd and analysing this too much, but... Yeah, that was quite shocking. Okay, I think we've more or less kind of done on Enemy of the World and we're going to save talking about The Web of Fear at greater length until we've all had a chance to see it and we've got Lee as well and we can Mm -hmm. find out what he thought of those others. So should we go through the rest of those emails and call it a night? Do you think that might be a wise idea? Yeah, Yeah, can I just just quickly uh, say there was a very interesting interview on, on Radio 4 at the weekend on the Today programme. Um, and they had Neil Gaiman and John Levine as guests on there. And John Levine still owns one of the wooden Yeti from the Web of Fear. Oh, yeah. And uh, oh, he really? got it out wow. and, and Neil Gaiman was really excited, I have to say. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, that was that was a really good programme. So that's still on the BBC iPlayer. I don't know how long it, st- it stays on there for a month, does it? He didn't sing, I did he? I have no idea. He didn't. He didn't. Who, Neil Gaiman? No, but <laughs> <laughs> but Neil. Ga- one interesting thing was that Neil Gaiman said that uh, I think it was Kim Newman said after he did Neverwhere, pointed out that with all the stuff in the underground and what have you in Neverwhere, he'd obviously been affected at a young age by the Web of Fear. And Neil Gaiman mm, says, "Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong." So there you go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um. <clears throat> okay. Emails. Uh, Richard Hogarth. Hey guys, love the Incredible Hulk podcast. I thought the points brought up were insightful and nostalgic, and that's what makes you such a joy to hear each week. Does he? He did mean oh, us bless. before, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Actually, that was us three, wasn't it? He says, "I wanted to put to you guys with Invasion of the Dinosaurs. I accidentally forgot one time. Oh, this is interesting. This is a bit like the other question we had just now." He says, with Invasion of the Dinosaurs, I accidentally forgot one time to pop on the colour version of episode one, so I saw it in black and white. And I have to say, it was much better than seeing it in colour. For me, it made all the cheesy effects seem natural, and I was actually creeped out by the episode. Mm. Are there any of the colour stories you would love to see in black and white? For me, the Green Death and Warriors of the Deep might work. (laughs) We'll come to it, we'll come to it. Yeah. Keep up the great work, he says. I eagerly await your next instalment and just wanted to say, well done, Simon. I am glad you got your way and you get to celebrate your special day, getting married and then watching the special. Hope you have a great time. Thank you very much. (laughs) Okay, then. Uh, Colour stories we'd like to see in black and white. What were you going to say, Simon? You seem to think I was thinking of something particular. You, well, yeah, I was just—I was going to give it as a feed line to you. You have one in particular that you've always wanted to see in black and white, haven't you? Have I? What is it? <laughs> or, or, or are we? Or are we? Or is it that back to this idea, or maybe this urban myth about the Happiness Patrol? 
Oh yeah. Also, I mentioned the Happiness Patrolling earlier for animation, didn't I? So I really didn't want to pick that one again. Oh yeah, yeah. That would mm. be awful. <laughs> Go on, Simon. Have you got a thought about what you might like to see in black and white? Oh, good. No. No, nothing springs to mind as such. I thought the one you were going to recommend that JR would want to see in black and white was going to be The Ambassadors of Death because he's taken such a interest in what's in black and white and what's in colour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Make his th- yeah, no. I would like to see Blink in black and white. Hey, nice. Well, that's an interesting choice. Why mm. Blink? Uh, well, it's creepy as it is, but I think there's something about monochrome that just emphasises the spookiness. Mm. And I think that could be quite a good contender. You know what my choice was going to be? Horror of Fang Rock. Oh, yeah. I mean, at the Mm. moment on VT, it's very sort of shades of grey, unfortunately. But if you could put it in black and white and put it in really stark contrast film, blimey, what a story that would be. I agree. Yeah, definitely. You you say that um, something like Hyde as well. Mm. Yeah. Hyde. Maybe. Um, Yeah, yeah. Because it, it kind of makes me think of The Haunting and things like that. Yeah, I was so. just going to say The Haunting. It's very like The Haunting. Mm. But maybe that's... It? Like, <clears throat> it's less to do with what would be... It's what would seem natural for the episode as opposed to whether it would actually be better, though. I think. <coughs> I just... Yeah, Horror Fang Rock just feels... Just feels like it almost is black and white anyway. I, it would only... Apart from the root and turning up green at the end, I don't think you'd really notice... Apart from, you know, if you put it into stark contrast and made it so much more. <clears throat> anyway, we have another question. Do you want to go for another question? Go on, oh, oh, sorry, oh, can I just oh, say, oh. Um, Midnight. <coughs> Midnight would come across as an episode of Twilight Zone. Oh. Yeah. I think it already does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, right door, Midnight. Here's another question then. Mark Whiteley says, I have a question for you and the team. Harry, my three-year-old, has just got his sixth Doctor toys and he loves it. He's been going on about it since he saw a sixth Doctor adventure card I have. It must be the coat. Anyway, my (laughs) question is, and this is quite interesting, he says, what would you guys show a three-year-old of the sixth Doctor, bearing in mind that my missus will not accept violent stories? You can see my dilemma, he says. Thoughts on the least violent Sixth Doctor story. Jeebus. Well, you know, I didn't answer instantly. And it might be because he said the word dilemma as part of the question. Oh. <laughs> Show him Twin Dilemma, but start with episode two. <laughs> Giant slug monster, bird men, a man in a coat that's almost as bad taste and violently coloured as the Doctor's. <laughs> Lots of running around and lots of extreme silliness. I think a three-year-old would love that, as long as you skipped episode one, don't you? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's you're really struggling to find anything that's... Because yeah. it is so... Suitable, yeah. Not that you've mentioned before in the past about Eric Sayward's tenure being overly violent and not for kids. No, but... It but is really a... hard to think of one that you would show a three-year-old. Yeah. God. I'm not entirely sure there is, but mm, I think well. that's—I reckon that's a, a good call there, Jr. As, well, as far as I could see, it was the only choice, really. And actually, um, I sent that to Mark in an email and replied to him, and he said, "Yeah, he'd already come to the same conclusion <laughs> after he'd pressed send." Anyway, Doc Whom. Here's an email from Doc Whom. He says, "Gentlemen." 
I don't see how Seeds of Doom can be such a favourite of Lee's if he can't even remember the story properly. He said that two of his <laughs> favourite bits were the unit connection and the mincing machine, but every Doctor Who fan worth his salt knows that Captain Yates didn't appear in any Tom Baker stories. <laughs> <laughs> Mark and Lee are so right about widowy wardrobey thing. It is crap. And please don't try that line on us about it being written for six-year-olds. Doctor Who isn't meant to be written for six-year-olds. It's meant to be aimed at children, but written to also engage older age groups. The show wouldn't get anything approaching the ratings that the BBC likes to brag about if it was only written for six-year-olds. Stephen Moffat and co. wouldn't touch it with a barge pole if it was only written for six-year-olds, and they'd never be given the salaries or budgets they get if it was only written for six-year-olds. It's only supposed to be a kid's show is just an excuse people use when a story which was intended to be written for that mix of kids and adults tanks through inattention to writing, plotting and characterization. And that's from Doc Who. Mm. Uh, to which my reply was, yeah, but Widowy Wardrobe wasn't written for six-year-olds. It was written for three-year-olds. <laughs> and Torchwood was written for 13-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're about right there. Mm. Torchwood the perfect antidote to uh, Colin Baker's Doctor Who. Or the, rather, the perfect complement to it. Mm -hmm. Not Series antidote. One, anyway. mm. Dear and the boys and JR, I partic this is from Al No. Hey, Al. He says, I particularly, I particularly enjoyed your recent surgery on the Hulk, especially the impression of bricks. Since subscribing, I found that my... Is that a reference to the fall? Did we talk about the fall? Yes. <coughs> Don't you remember oh, yeah, Simon yeah. doing his uncanny impression of Mark Smith? Oh, well, Brick Smith. Smith. Oh, I see. Mm. Oh, yeah, Brick Smith. I get it now. Yes. I'm guessing. It's been yeah. a while since we recorded that. Oh, she's gorgeous. She's still gorgeous, Brick Smith. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I've she's no idea bit, what she looks like she's, since she's about odd, 1988. But, yeah. JR had more of a thing for Mark Riley. That was a bit of a Lee moment. Uh, Al, this, is from, this is from Al No, who continues, Since subscribing, I've found that my trudging commute has become much more agreeable. Read into that what you will. It's not why I've got the ink out again. Still green, you'll note. He says, I was simply blown away when you read when you read my last and first letter out. It was a hugely exciting moment for both me and my fellow passengers. <laughs> was that just on my download, or did everybody get one? Thanks to you all for helping clear the carriage. It's a rare treat to have a window seat all to oneself in this nightmarish vision of the future. I think he must reaction must mm. have been pretty physical. I think he's trying to out hollow poro hollow poro. <clears throat> oh no, Al knows written in the You and Who books. He's he's like Hollow Poro from a time before Hollow Poro. <laughs> or from well <clears throat> In fact I wouldn't be at all surprised if they were both the same person. Mm, I have no Sorry, I missed something. How did he clear the carriage? <clears throat> his reaction to hearing his email read out. Oh that's okay. He didn't say well, what the reaction was, just that it cleared the carriage. <laughs> 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 in my mind. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> he says, also, after your interesting... Oh, and by the way, uh, Hollow Poro is up next. All right. So we can compare and contrast and see mm. if it really is the same person. 
He says, also, this is still Al No at the moment. He says, also, after your interesting conjecture about why Doctor Who and the frontier in space would have been a rubbish title for the book, I was left wondering at what point Target gave up retitling their adaptive 125 penny dreadfuls to make them sound more lurid or marketable. Doctor Who and the Visitation? Pa! Doctor Who and the Reptiles of Terror would have gushed out of the nation's bookshops. Gushed. And with that, the banging's back. Better go. Yours tentatively, Al No. Thank you, Al. I seem to recall that when I emailed him back, I came up with some interesting alternative titles myself, but now I can't remember what they are. So I don't know why I brought that up, because I've just made myself look like a twat. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad you said that word. (laughs) You're glad I said that word? Yeah. As opposed to idiot. Twit. That'd be Doctor okay, Who and the Great, Great Plague, wouldn't it? Or something like that. Oh, don't be silly. Think of other Doctor Who stories that have rubbish titles and come up with a better one quick. Doctor Who and the Fire of Pudding Lane. No, you've done the same story again. <laughs> Try and think of another story, any <laughs> other story than The Visitation, and come up with an alternative title. Preferably from the 80s, because that's when they gave it up, isn't it? Okay. Um, I suppose they gave it up in the 70s as well. I suppose Earthshock would have been Return of the Cybermen, wouldn't it? I know it's obvious, but... Doctor Who, Death to the Adric. Oh, yeah, yeah. Doctor Who and the Deadly Holiday Camp. Poof goes Adric. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on. Hollow Porro. Hey, Reverend. He says, Rev's up. There's a man over the road that is in charge of a company car park. He wears a bright, high-vis yellow tabard. He thinks he's in charge of the whole country and is in, and he is jokingly called the sheriff. Someone bought him a sheriff badge in Secret Santa. He wears it on his tabard. Coming to BBC Three this autumn, there's a guy who works down the car park, swears he's Adric. <laughs> Is there? God. I don't know what this guy's on. He says, "Is there a spin-off in this?" He says, "What other spin-off ideas can you all think of?" Hey, why not ask the listeners? And when they reply, pretend it was your idea and neglect the rev. He says, "We wouldn't do that, would we?" As if. No, I'm going to come back to the rest of his email in a minute. I think there should have going back to the subject of Adric. I think there should have been a spin-off series about Adric's adventures in primeval earth mm. battling dinosaurs and running away from tyrannosaurus rexes don't you think yeah absolutely mark you must agree with that in absolutely. stop motion if necessary absolutely well it would have improved the performance 100 percent. i, I would have liked to see a sitcom Matthew with mel and glitz house is actually a regular listener to this podcast oh, oh bless him well do you, do you know oh, what shut up simon <laughs> no he's not well he could be he, he could be building dolls of us as we speak um, I, I imagine Adric ended up in the same situation as Marvin in The Hitchhiker's Guide, you know, where he ends up talking to a sofa. <laughs> yes, Adric would probably end up, or like in Castaway, where he starts talking to a football or whatever it is. Yes, what does he it, talk? Yeah. Is it a football? It's yeah. a volleyball, yes. I think. And Adric would find a similarly inanimate object to talk to and start talking to himself. Anyway, the <laughs> Reverend Hollow Porro carries on, and so my favourite serial story ever is Robots of Death. When I was in the sixth form in the early 90s, I remember the freedom of study periods, and one day took a stroll to the local video library as they were having a sale of old titles. I bought Spearhead from Space and the Robots of Death. Mm. On putting Robots of Death on... 
hearing the music, seeing the design, seeing Tom, just wow. I got an emotional quiver, the like of which I have never had since. And I don't mean the effect of Leela on a 17-year-old lad. (laughs) (laughs) That's a different kind of a quiver, isn't it? It made me feel how I felt when I fell in love with Doctor Who and its first broadcast. Nothing to do with plot, acting, whatever. I was too young to know about that. I was four, and watching it... And watching it again 13 years later brought back the feelings. I don't remember the original broadcast, but I remember the shapes and sounds and essence of Dr. Four and Louise Jameson, enough to make that rewatch one of the greatest experiences of my life. Well, that's shown my emotional side. Now, spack off, y'all, he says. <laughs> but then he came back and he says, <clears throat> Oh, do you remember we got... um." On uh, our Facebook page, somebody called Visual Think Tank came in and said, and the Reverend brings this up, he says, Visual Think Tank said, when our latest podcast went up after a two-week break, and about time too, is Hello Porro on this one? He's so damn funny. (laughs) Visual Think Tank sounds like an arts council project for dropouts. Still, they made a good point and are, of course, right. Can't wait for the episode that me, Doc Whom, Odd Bean and the unheard from for a while Sookie Cock sick present. <laughs> you do indeed get good emails. We should at least get invited to the Blue Box Christmas do. <laughs> Bye for now. The Reverend Captain Hollow Porro. Nice. Uh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, my, my idea for the spin-off was going to be um, Glitz and Mel in a Terry and June style sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or... How about a version of the Liver Birds with Tegan and Nissa? Yeah. Tegan and Nissa sharing a flat in mm. Liverpool in the yeah. 1970s. I was going to call it quits there, but actually we've only got two more emails. One from Doc Whom and one from Al No. So should we go for it? Go on, knock them out. Go on. <clears throat> okay, the Doc Whom one is quite a long one, but I shall endeavour to get through it, even though my cough's starting to get a bit worse now. Quick, take a swig of water. Talk over me swigging water, guys. Well, oh, another idea for a spin-off would be you could do a sitcom, couldn't you, of Leela and um, Eldred, couldn't you? Mark, enough, Mark, enough. And it'd be My Wife is Savage or something like that would be called, wouldn't it? Hmm. In kind of a oh, 19, yes. ni- 1970s oh. ITV style. <laughs> love thy savage. you could do, yeah, Love Thy Neighbour, but updated mm. to uh, Love Thy Savage. Or... God, you could move uh, any one of any number of Doctor Who companions in next door and call it Love Thy Neighbour or Love Thy Whatever, couldn't you, really? Mm. Oh, my mm. God. Well, Mel. Um, anyway, <laughs> Doc Whom says, Gentlemen, if you're looking for classic lines to be included in the 50th anniversary episode, look no further than Terror of the Autons, which includes some of the finest crafted lines in Doctor Who. Uh, you ham-fisted bun vendor. <laughs> and not forgetting the best line in the show's whole 50 years you're a dolly scotsman mr campbell yes you are you are from joe do you remember that you're a dolly scotsman no that one i remember the bun fisted i do remember that yeah or i think i'm pretty sure i do uh oh yeah (laughs) dolly scotsman i'm sure of it 
He's making it Doc Whom. Anyway, he carries on. Talking of people moaning about the recently announced list of trivial ephemera planned for the build-up to the 50th anniversary, imagine if they'd kept everything secret. Then they'd have announced in September that there'd be a list of trivial ephemera, plus a feature-length docudrama written by Mark Gatiss about how the show originated. We'd all be over the moon now instead of whinging. I can see problems in bringing back the Draconians to New Who, because, elaborately pointy ears aside, wouldn't they look almost identical to the redesigned Silurians? I think I did make that point, didn't I? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Fair point, yeah. I don't think that would be too big an issue. When the Jadine came in, everybody said you can't do the Sontarans now. They yeah. look too much like the Sontarans. And it wasn't an issue. I think it just gives you the option to go slightly off-piste with it and do something radically different. Do you know, I'm amazed they've not made, for some reason, thinking about the Draconians, I'm thinking of the Sycorax as well. I'm always amazed that they haven't made more of the Sycorax, mm. that they haven't returned, because uh, th- potentially they had quite an interesting culture, but very similar to Draconians in a lot of ways. Yeah, I have to say there's been a couple of things that I thought we might have seen more of and haven't, but I guess that's just the way it goes. Mm. You know, in 20 years' time, people will be bringing these back then, won't they? No doubt. Mm. Mm. Doc Hume continues, I still think you're wrong about the half-human issue. Yes, the Doctor is 100% alien Time Lord who can regenerate, has two hearts and a respiratory thingamy, but he's mildly bonkers, fights bullies and looks after his friends. What's stopping us identifying with that? I think people are paying too much attention to writing theory textbooks. Viz the insistence on the companion being a youngish modern human these days because we won't have an in to the show if we can't self-identify with the companion. Did we have any trouble identifying with Jamie, Leela or either of the Romanas? <clears throat> you know, I think the point about having a human companion, a modern human companion, isn't so much necessarily that we identify with them but that we can identify with all the individual facets of their experience. For instance, when the young, modern, human companion first has to use a transmat, we use that transmat for the first time alongside them. Things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Their first trip into the past is our first trip into that period of the past too. So we need to see it through the eyes of somebody who has the same experiences as we do. And in the old series... Jamie, he might have been a Jacobean Scotsman in name, but let's be honest, in everything else, he was a swinging 60s lad who was listening to the Beatles, had a floppy haircut, and was off having adventures. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Leela and the Romanas are slightly more interesting, but the Romanas, apart from being that they... uh, were written in to have similar intelligence levels to the Doctor, to be more of an equal to the Doctor. I don't think there's anything particularly alien about either of them. Was there? Am I missing that? Not, no. I don't not in, not in the same no. way, I mean, being up against Tom as well, Tom was <coughs> the most alien mm. Doctor. So they would have to be going some to try and out-alien him. Yeah. Mm. I think the most interesting thing they... Probably the only interesting thing they really, truly did in the classic series with the Companions was Leela, was doing the Pygmalion thing. But then that was very ostentatiously doing the Pygmalion thing, wasn't it? Yeah. And that made that interesting. Anyway, should we get on? And the fact she's a bloody good actress as well. Yeah. Oh, I think at the end of the day, is it entertaining or not? (laughs) 
It's yeah. as simple as that, isn't it? I mean, you don't have to identify with Tom and Jerry to find it entertaining, do you? No, no. I but was I do on think, uh, Jerry's side. No, Tom's side. But I do think the most important point is that we experience things that we need to experience as being unusual. If you had somebody from the future, all the future stuff would already be explained to that person, so it would never need explaining to the audience. Whereas if you've just got somebody you can say to, oh, this is a communications device, it's a bit different to your mobile phone, it works like this. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You need somebody you can say that to. You couldn't have said that to Captain Jack, which is why Captain Jack was there when Rose was there. Yes. Anyway, Doc Hume. He says, I must have missed the episode of All Creatures Great and Small where Peter Davison took his arm out of a cow's ass and instead shoved his head up his own because that's the <laughs> only explanation I can think of for his nonsense about Doctor Who having a natural lifespan. The whole premise of the show is that it self-renews when it becomes tired or damaged. We have a show which lasted for 26 years, disappeared for 16 because the BBC stopped caring about it and thought that it had to pander to the idea that the audience was too shallow to appreciate good TV and now it's been going again for eight years. How does anyone deduce from that that the show has a natural cycle which requires breaks? If you want to renew the audience's flagging interest in the show, you don't stop showing it for a few years. You employ its existing internal renewal cycle and bring in a new doctor. I really do think that some people are far too in awe of TV theorists who confidently trot out extra virgin bollocks like this, which on <laughs> closer analysis turns out to have little basis in reality. And you you three really should stop pandering to it so that you can pose as being blasé about the prospect <laughs> of an extended break in the hope that this will distance you from the stereotype of the obve- obsessive fanboy so near I think what? we've just been told off yeah, yeah. what I will say is quite interesting I was talking to my father-in-law about we were talking about Downton Abbey and it was interesting how obviously when that series first came in it was absolutely you know it's got off the scale with reviews and everyone was loving it and it's kind of feels like it's running out of steam that's the impression I don't watch it it's not my sort of thing but I get the impression that's kind of running out of steam but I was saying about the fact that ITV will keep churning it out all the time. It's a commercial success. And Mm. they don't give it any kind of natural break. Whereas if that was a BBC drama, it's possible they would have given it maybe a year and a half or two years break between series to allow it to breathe again. And one thing I will say about the new Doctor Who is I know it irritates all the fans because they say, oh, no, we want a series every year. But they do give it a natural break in order to give it a chance to recharge its batteries. And therefore, it will probably last longer in that respect than if it's just given a series every year, regardless of the standard. So, you know, that's an argument somewhere between the two, if you ask me. I think you're just living up to Doc Hume's stereotyping (laughs) of you. (laughs) I think it's precedent in the the classic series when you got to season six and they were, you know, making episodes virtually every week of the year, struggling to get decent enough stories together to actually make something filmable. Um, perhaps they've gone in a lot of people's opinions too much the other way by having such a pronounced break but I don't know it's a fine line you don't want to see someone like Moffat burnt out and sort of losing the creative spark that's what's happened isn't it Ooh, <laughs> that's why <right>, everybody <laughs> um, right I'm not going down that road <laughs> um, one final email pretty short from Al No. Dear Abner Boys and JR, I'm still on the train, so I'll have to whisper. 
Although he's cleared the car- carriage, so I don't know. Maybe he's got some more. He's in the quiet carriage. The... He says the favourites episode of the podcast. I oh, know this will be another journey on the train. What am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> he might have opened a window. <laughs> he says the favourites episode of the podcast was delightful, but I did notice a plot thread that wasn't knotted before the credits. I think you might have been thinking of Chekhov's gun, made famous by Russian dramatist Harlan Ellison in his screenplay The Seagull on the Edge of Forever, which was in turn <laughs> part of an American soap opera that I can't remember the name of. Season 6, you say? Looking forward to some quark love for that one. Oh, Best yes. dash, the end is nigh. Yours, third actishly, Al. And that very much is the third act, because that's the end of the podcast. I was JR. I was Mark. <laughs> and I was Simon. <laughs> and we'll get to the Web of Fear, and we'll talk about all sorts I of th- other things. Oh, can I just things. say, I think we should Go have on. a three-week break, because I think we're tiring now, and we need a three-week break uh, to recharge our batteries so we can come back bigger and better. I'm always giving you a three weeks break, Simon, and you never come back bigger or better. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, that would have worked better if it had been Lee saying that, but he's not here. He's in the middle of a three-week break. Yeah, we're giving him a break. <clears throat> uh, actually, it is a three-week break for Lee, isn't it? it yeah, it is. Well, four weeks. Because, uh, well, it's a long time since we've recorded one, because we... we uh, Oh, I can't remember what Don't happened. Don't spoil the magic, JR. Yeah. Okay. The listeners think it's broadcast live. <clears throat> you know, we haven't really talked as much about the uh, recovered episodes as I really wanted to, but there'll be other times this story is too big for a single podcast. I agree. I agree. So I think perhaps next week, maybe we will do season six next week after all, or maybe we'll do the Web of Fear next week. And come around to season six after that. Mm. There's going to be a lot of Patrick Trout on this podcast between I'm now and the anniversary. And there's a good that reason. That's all for I it. can say. Yeah. But in the meantime, uh, we haven't said this yet, but bloody hell, all all hail Phil Morris. Yes. National <clears throat> hero. Yeah. Well, at least as far as Doctor Who fans are concerned. Yeah. I don't think uh, Peppa Pig fans probably think of him that mm, way. But. I don't know. But they should do. We should tell them. What? Go on, explain to me. Peppa Pig? I'm just being funny, Simon. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think it's time to go, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. So. Okay, I'll say it again. I was JR. I was Mark. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon. And the web of fear, guys! <laughs> why, why not do the Web it's of Fear back. next week? Why not? It's back. The Web of Fear. It's back. I know. It's awesome. Uh, who would ever have thought it? I know, it's just odd. It's very odd. I mean, it's just, hey, is it uh, last? Th- oh, see, I should have said this during the podcast. Like, last. Well, you still recorded. Oh, okay. Um, the midnight went over, and it felt like a. Uh, it's a new dawn. It's a new day. It did feel like things had changed. Obviously, that, that total of missing episodes, is it 97 it's down to Yeah, now? it's yeah. now sunk below 100. Below 100. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it feels more likely than ever that we're going to get more. Uh, and not only is it sunk below 100, but actually you stick in the fact that we've had now something like eight animated episodes, or mm. will have had. Mm-hmm. And they're not as good as having the episodes back, but they're not really a bad substitute. No. 
you know, at one point, <clears throat> well, on VHS, for example, on VHS, how many Patrick Trout VHSs were there? Five? And now we stand to have something like ten Patrick Trout DVDs. Astonishing. Astonishing. <laughs>